This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a special welcome to those of you who are joining us and listening for the first time. Uh, today, we're going to take a bit of a break again from the Sinister UX Traits series. A lot of great feedback on that. Thank you for those of you who take the time to reach out to me. Uh, but we've been having some breaks here and there in more recent weeks, and I just feel it's time to do it again. And mostly because of this fantastic opportunity that lays before us, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. But UX research, when you think of UX research, what do you think of? Who do you think of when that topic comes up? And it's a really hot topic today in, in UX circles. Everybody seems to want to be getting into UX research, and there's a lot being said about UX research. And personally, for me, when I think of UX research, the first thing that comes to mind are people who have fed into my life. And, and, and names that come to mind, people like Jeff Sorrow, Michelle Ronson, Steve Travis, John Whalen, Steve Krug. You can't talk about this without talking about Steve Krug. Bruce Hannington and Bella Martin. I love the compilation they put together with the, with the Universal Design book. Just fantastic stuff. Tomer Sharon, Leah Bewley. Of course, someone who's also appeared on the show before, Dr. Ari Zelmanow. Shout out, Ari. I know you're listening. Uh, Elizabeth Goodman, Mike Kuniavsky, and Andrea Mode have to mention them together because they all combine to write the Observing the User Experience book. But there's also another person, and this is a person that has impacted me. Every time I've ever seen his name on anything, I automatically gravitated to it because I know that, hey, when you know there's gold, not pyrite, when you know there's gold, you go where the gold is. And so anytime I ever saw it was a post, a book, anything that this person has done, I always made it a point to gravitate to it and make sure to put it in, in my treasure chest because I knew that it was something, whatever he produced, whatever he said was something that was going to help vault me forward as an individual because I know that that's my responsibility. And all of you out there, it's your responsibility. So when you get an opportunity to sit at the feet of, so to speak, and listen to someone who they just keep pouring out just golden nugget after golden nugget after golden nugget. It, it's first of all, you got to really feel privileged to be able to, to hear things like that, especially in this age of misinformation. Uh, but my goodness, what would it be like to have the person on the show? Well, I got a surprise for you. We're taking a break today. And today with me, I have the author of Doorbells, Danger and Dead Batteries, User Research War Stories. Love that stuff. A lot of people don't like talking about that kind of stuff, but he's not a he's not a coward. You folks know I talk about that. <laughs> he's going to tell you what he needs to tell you. Uh, and his new book, and correction, I almost forgot, it is the second edition of the book, Interviewing Users. Today with me, folks, I have the one, the only, Steve Portugal with us on the show. Welcome, Steve, to the world of UX. And as is my custom, I take the time, I let my guests introduce themselves. So uh, take it away, Steve. 
Well, I, I love that you said welcome after providing just the most uh, gracious and enthusiastic <laughs> literal welcome that I think anyone <laughs> could ask for. So that's really an honor to be be here and to talk with you and for folks to listen to us. Um, and hopefully there are, hopefully together we can get a couple of gold nuggets uh, out of the conversation <laughs> for people. No, no pressure as, as, uh, as people say. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I am Steve Portugal. I am talking to you from a small coastal town near the San Francisco, near the, in the San Francisco Bay area in near, what are we saying? Um, I am a user research consultant. I have my own business Mm. where I've been working as a consultant. Uh, this is the 23rd year that I've been working for myself. Wow. Um, so that's, yeah, a long time. Uh, I have the, the gray hair and I guess the stories to kind of go along with it and <laughs> sure we'll dig into some of the, some of the past. If you old people want to talk about the past a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and my work is, uh, a few things. I do user research. I work with companies to help them learn things about customers, users, themselves, their employees, something that they need to kind of uncover to drive something they're going to build or do or understand, you know, something strategic often, but not always. Sometimes it's about products, features, like tactical stuff. We got to ship. I teach, I teach it mostly in companies, sometimes at conferences, but I go into companies and like run workshops and give people some of the material that's in my book. And we practice things, Um, you know, I consult and advise and help companies try to, you know, it's why I think the sort of the books, the podcasts, those are all, um, oh, if I was smarter, what would you call that? That's sort of one to many content, I guess. It's like, here's a thing we're going to say to you about what to do. Mm-hmm. We don't know you. And so I think when, you know, when I have the chance to work in a more consultative way, it means going in, talking to people, doing some of those research things uh, about research, about how research is practiced. But then, you know, advising, generating solutions, whatever is really specific to what's going on in that company and their culture. Uh, so I like, I like teaching. I like, I like, I like it all. You know, the cool thing for me is it all informs each other. Like there's nothing like, um, and this has been true for as long as I've been teaching stuff. There's nothing like making a mistake and then realizing, Oh, I messed that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yes. And then like that becomes a thing to teach other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean of course that you stop making those mistakes. Um, you know, and, and even to, I, I, when I make a mistake that is sort of part of my quote, I'm making air quotes, my teaching, when I make <laughs> one of those mistakes and yeah. I realize, Oh, I'm supposed to know better. Like I'm telling other people this, it actually makes my teaching stronger because I have, I can get a little insight about my own actions and like, yeah. oh, even though I know this, here's what it felt like to do this. Here's why I made this decision. And here's what the consequences were. And that makes my, you know, it's good to have a negative example to illustrate yes. why to do something or why not to do something. Absolutely. Uh, I'm way off from your question here. Now no, just, no, yeah. no. Go anywhere, any direction you want to go <laughs> is fine by us. That, that what you just said is fantastic. Isn't it great? When you have an opportunity to say I was wrong and the learnings that come out of it and the constructiveness that comes out, that's what I heard in, in, yeah. in what you just said. So I, I love that. It, it's going to happen. Uh, we're going to make wrong turns. 
no matter how prepared we are, no matter how informed we might be, it's just life. It's, it's just going to happen. Um, so, yeah. So I think that, that there's great value in what you said. And there are no boundaries. So feel free <laughs> to go anywhere you want to go. <laughs> Absolutely. But wow. And, and I think about that 23 years on your own. There's not a lot of people out there uh, who, who can say that or, or that we hear talking about it. I should say there's a lot of people out there that they can say it almost makes me want to go down the road of uh, how people who were more senior practitioners, how difficult it can be to, to get hired. And that's been happening for a long time. I used to wonder when I was a junior, I used to wonder why has everybody's been doing UX for a long time? Why are they all consultants? And now I'm in that, in that position, I'm fortunate to still be em- employed by someone else, but I've had opportunities to do it. And I, I understand now why some of those things happen. So man, I, I just rejoice in that you've been doing that on your own for 23 years. And obviously it has been sustainable. It's been supportive. It's been something you've been able to do consistently. So, so I, I rejoice. I celebrate with you on that and, and encourage other people that think they might end up having to go that way. There's people you want to listen to people like Steve, because I'm sure you got the war stories. Again, you can talk about different things that will help people to try to advance in that direction and do so in a in an accurate and in a, a sustainable manner instead of just having an, a, an idea and just going out and doing it and not really knowing right. what direction you're going. So that's that's fantastic. So you you mentioned how you how long you've been doing this on your own, but how long have you really been practicing? And uh, how so? I guess I could say I, I'm I'm going to ask the standard question: How long have you been a practitioner? And then with that, I'm going to say how long? How did you get your start? So we can we can probably put yeah. those together. Yeah. Um, and so before I started this consulting business in 2000, I worked for about six years for uh, a consultancy. So we're mm-hmm. now we're talking like the last part of the 90s. So a really different era. Yeah. Um, right. There was the web was just starting to be a thing. Um, people didn't say UX or user experience. Like I think a lot of the language and sort of the definitions we have, there was a whole era before that. So mm-hmm. there weren't, you know, when you thought about where were the companies sort of doing this stuff, those were software companies. Those were like, um, telcos, uh, were sort of the innovative companies that were doing things with technology. And again, we didn't say UX, um, right. You know, we didn't have that language, uh, at that time. Uh, like the agency that I worked at was an industrial design consultancy, um, which, you know, depending on your age or your history, like that might, you might not know what that is. Mm. Uh, but there was an era where, um, in terms of agencies, creative practices, like industrial design consultancies were, dominant or ascendant. Um, you know, I think most people know the name IDEO and IDEO was the industrial design consultancy. That was not where I was working or anything, but, um, you know, and they evolved their positioning, their story. We don't, we don't talk about industrial design, but you'd go into these places and they had shops. They had like engineers working on like mechanical things and on circuit boards and 3d printers and, um, you know, they were sort of the place where like products coming to the world were being thought about in creative ways and to try to supplement or 
it was all the, all these consultancies were trying to bring things to companies that were sort of outside their core creative capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so as yep. software became more of a thing, you started to see a little bit of, I want to call it software design, but I think about how it was practiced. It didn't look like design. When we say design now, that also means something. So yeah. there was this sort of nascent practice of people that were coming from all over the place that were making software that was maybe usable, maybe conformed to guidelines. Uh, there were no, um, you know, there were no, there weren't design systems back then, but there were things like the, uh, right. Apple's human interface guideline was like right. a big <laughs> book. It was like a physical book that you had to kind of be compliant to. And, um, and so I, I came out uh, of graduate school with a degree in human computer interaction, mm-hmm. HCI, which still has some currency. Um, yeah. but it was a, it was a, it was a science degree. It was not a practitioner's degree. I didn't get a portfolio. I didn't make things. I didn't learn how software was made. I didn't learn how to design. It was kind of a critical thinking and theoretical kind of master's degree. And, you know, I did a thesis about, uh, using audio to navigate hypertext. Like it was just very academia was what it was. Mm-hmm. And so to come out of there into, you know, this pre-web, um, you know, era where, you know, the there was the CHI conference, CHI, which mm-hmm. again, you're either going to know what that is or you're going to have no idea because <laughs> it's just outside your own, your right. own history. But that was the place where, uh, people like Bill Buxton would show up and kind mm-hmm. of talk about what was happening at Park. Uh, it was Xerox Park back then and then became Park. Um, yep. You know, and you'd, you'd hear some of the stuff. But so again, like telcos um, were doing a lot of it. Microsoft was doing some of it. Sun Microsystems, like some of there was a handful of people that were kind of floating around between these places. But it was a very, very nascent time. And um a really weird time to be a new grad with no sort of, I don't want to say I didn't have any skills, but sort of skills that were hard to articulate to someone that didn't know what that was or why they would need it. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up getting hired into this very tiny like consultancy, this, this product design consultancy that was kind of trying to understand where they were going to be providing value. Um, in addition to sort of old school traditional industrial design and kind of mechanical engineering, they saw, um, again, I just, all these terms are so dated, but they sort of are markers of that time. Right. There was this, there was this phrase that got floated around, which is kind of awful, but was the uh, fuzzy front end or the fuzzy (laughs) front end of innovation. Um, And that's like, what are we going to make? And I think, you know, if you were sort of, if you were a form giving service, people came to you with their product and you helped shape it and make sure that the buttons were going to click properly and that the battery would last long enough before they could, whatever thing it had to do, if it was a pulse oximeter for a hospital or some, you know, some other kind of industrial electronic object. And so they were, they were experimenting with like, how do we articulate this idea of, yeah, but innovation, like left of the, someone said left of the idea, which I thought was the worst phrase I'd ever heard. <laughs> um, uh, and so that was actually less about sort of designing software and more about, well, we call it innovation, but it's, it's user research, it's design, it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's, um, 
uh, you know, divergent thinking about possibilities. It's asking how might we, it's all that kind of stuff that was not fully codified in kind of the practice. Um, the way I think those are things that a lot of people would recognize now is like part of the toolkit that they use. Um, and so trying to figure out both kind of the business case for it, like, how do we do it? Sorry, how do we sell it? How do we explain it? How do we get people to, you know, how do you project manage this? What does this look like? And then also, yeah, how do we do it? Yeah. And um, so I was, again, just coming into this very new, um, but had a few years at this organization where they were figuring it out and I kind of got to participate in some of the figuring out. And so I learned um, at least sort of the first, right. We learn our whole lives, but like there was a first era of, of learning kind of going from zero to one or whatever the acceleration there is um, that happened kind of on the job in a context where we were experimenting with things like um, just writing. I remember writing proposals over and over and over again and trying to figure out how do we say what it is that we do and then how do we scope it? How do we plan for it? Um, and I think sort of, also, how do we do it? Like, how do you conduct research? How do you make sense of it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one point that organization hired a couple of anthropologists that came in with some mm -hmm. actual skills, like they had been trained in this. Um, and uh, wow, huge culture clash, because of course, <laughs> um, you know, we were kind of a uh, make it up as you go along kind of culture. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to legitimize their practice by bringing in people with credibility, but didn't really make room for that. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, I think about my own lost opportunity. Like I worked alongside, you know, trained anthropologists um, and yeah, didn't learn from them, um, which is, I don't know, my own youthful cocky arrogance and, I think a culture of cocky arrogance and just a mismatch <laughs> of, of that. Um, and, you know, now that's much more commonplace, right? Social science people are, you know, at all levels, junior and senior mm. have helped form the field of user research as it is today. Um, and I think we were just starting to like see the bridges that needed to be crossed as kind of combine the, the seat of the pants people and the, and the theory people and the trained discipline people. Um, yeah. So anyway, just, uh, I worked at that agency for a while, um, and really learned a lot about a lot of different aspects of work. And, um, you know, we had, uh, we're talking now in a, a weird time for the, the, the UX field kind of financially, economically, uh, certainly not the first one. Um, and so 2001 was just a big economic mess. Uh, and so, that agency didn't kind of make it through that era. Mm. And so I ended up, I ended up on my own. It was never the dream to consult for myself. Oh, wow. Um, but that was just, that just became the path, you know, you sort of end up on a path and 23 years later, like, Oh, I, <laughs> I guess this is what I'm doing. You know? Great jumping off point. It sounds like it's funny. You make me think about two things. One, I love, the differentiation that you point out between the science and the practice and that, and, and a lot of people might not be aware and, and I won't get, I won't go nerdy on this. I, I could, but that science basically means knowledge. And, and it's funny how that's where we all have to start with a foundation 
of knowledge so we know where we're going. And then the more we get to apply those things, we develop that confidence, we transition from that from that science-oriented mindset into that of a practitioner and that of an expert. And I know some people, I talk to a lot of people say they hate the word expert. Well, truth is, that's where we're all trying to go. And and then we, in UX, it's a, to be in UX, there is a commitment to lifelong learning. And we never truly arrived. 28 years for me now, I haven't arrived. And there's some stuff I haven't even been able to do yet. I still, I talk about it all the time. I, I still haven't done any IVR work. I may never do any IVR work. But the curiosity is I've got it on escrow. I've got, I've got my curiosity for augmented reality. I haven't had the opportunity to work in augmented reality, but you better believe that that curiosity is on escrow. And if the opportunity ever comes up, I'm going to jump on it. And, and I think it's it's critical to have that mindset in order to thrive as well as to bring value. And so you calling that out was something that was great. The other thing is the jumping off point that you just mentioned. I think a lot of times, I talk about how in the earlier days, a lot of people who got into UX early, we didn't, nobody planned on it. You just mentioned you didn't plan on starting a consultancy. It's it's amazing how many of us, nobody planned it because it wasn't an option. It was something that we sort of all just fell into. And we really have to be grateful for the opportunities because there's a lot of times it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we end up, a lot of us end up in these situations that afford us opportunities that we didn't know were opportunities. So we always have to make the most of where we are. And and that sounds like a fantastic opportunity, fantastic jumping off point. And, and I'm always talking about as well, it's great, especially I, I talk about personal UX maturity. And one of the things I think that's key is how you interact with the people that you work with that are more senior than you. And that's something that folks need to take more advantage of, especially in 2023 headed into 2024, I, I encourage people to take advantage of that. If you're working with somebody who's been doing the work longer than you, learn as much as you can. Don't be threatened by them slash us, <laughs> but but learn what you can and, and suppress the bias, suppress the cockiness. As you mentioned, suppress the arrogance. If, if you're young, it's likely there. Everybody had it to some extent. And, and they, a lot of people could have the same experience you did. And, who knew? I mean, you would never been able to say that you are where you are now back then. And the same goes for all of us. So I, I love that about the jumping off point. And I see your wheels turning like you're about to say something else there. So I'll hand it back over. Oh, you know, just you're making me think about something I really admire about UX community, which is um, it's your point about like learning from people that have more experience than you. And I think that like the amount of more can actually be very tiny. Mm. Uh, and the way that I see that showing up in the community is that people is, is the, it's not the learning mindset, it's the teaching mindset. Um, and uh, I remember seeing some really wonderful posts from people who were like brand, like they just got their first job in UX and then they, they broke it down and wrote a, like a very accessible, mm. I don't know, medium post or whatever the, the source was that just says like, like, here's like, I think this, I remember seeing someone like, here's what I wore to the interview. Here's what my portfolio looked like. Um, and, you know, I think because maybe we're encouraged more to have a voice and share it kind of earlier on. And there are more people kind of doing that. Um, 
you know, so yes, if, if you have uh, X amount of experience and there's somebody that has X plus a smidge experience, you can learn from them. It doesn't just have to be, you know, people with 28 years experience. Like right. I think that right. we, we can all learn from each other, um, you know, horizontally, not just vertically, I guess is what yep. I'm thinking, but yep. also um, that, that idea that people can put stuff out there to help other people. Um, you know, cause if someone's going to ask you or I about like interviewing for a job just out of undergraduate, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to speak for you. I mean, for me, the story that I just told is like incredibly dated, right? It, it's sort of interesting <laughs> as, um, hopefully it's interesting as kind of a historical artifact, but right. If you're coming out of school and you hear like, yeah, oh, yeah. Steve Portugal didn't even, there was no UX. How is that useful to you? Like, Right. It's not, it's not actionable. It's again, it's interesting or entertaining. It provides context, the history of our field. I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm just saying that like the people in, you know, now I'm speaking to whoever's listening, the people in your arc, uh, who have, um, uh, just a little bit more than you, you know, can be extremely valuable because they've, they've seen it recently. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's, there's expertise to be sought up and down, the, not just say ladder. I don't know. I'm throwing too many mixed metaphors in there. There's, there's expertise to be sought up and down the ladder. And there's huge value in sharing that expertise because mm-hmm. there are all these gaps. There's always going to be gaps yes. uh, in stuff that's being, that's being shared. And um, I just, I really like being part of that community. Like mm-hmm. I I'm telling you about a post that I had no use for, right. Um, except to pass it on to other people, which, which I did. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, people like you and I that have our own experience, but I think, I think we like to collect what other people are talking about. And, and yeah. so we can learn more about other things and, you know, use the platforms we have to share that stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just to kind of characterize, I think the field that we're in mm-hmm. and the culture of that and how this learning from each other manifests or what I've seen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jumping off from that point. Uh, my next question involved, and this is something I like to ask all my interviewees, what would you consider to be one of your most memorable or eye-opening moments as a practitioner in UX? You know, I remember the first, I haven't done a lot of international research. This was sort of something I had a little more access to in that consultancy. So it is an older an older sort of formative kind of moment. Um, and I remember doing research in other countries and uh, working with these interpreters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the word often gets, they often get called translators, uh, but these folks made a big distinction between translator and interpreter. Um, and the translators yeah. work on, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but if you have a book that's going to go, that's a static piece of like text that gets translated. But if you have a person and a live experience with them, that gets interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And uh, so I worked with these interpreters in uh, in Japan and in France. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, they were just these really interesting, like these folks are really interesting because they span cultures. Like they had these interesting backstories, uh, having grown up between two cultures, like, you know, I was born in Japan, you know, to an Asian family, 
spent my first eight years in the United States. My first 15 years came back and like, they would tell me, I'm like, Oh, I don't fit in either place. Um, and, uh, it was just sort of interesting mm. for me. Cause sometimes, uh, you, you know, when we look at people, we, we think about who, where they belong, but these people could, they were articulating how they didn't connect to the culture that I was projecting on them because they had all this language facility. So like they were on, they were in these kind of liminal spaces with their lives, but it, it gave them enormous power to, to literally interpret, to, to kind of bring these boundaries together. So they were great to talk about, uh, not they were providing the service, which was to be in the interview and, you know, have, you know, do simultaneous interpretation. So I'd start talking uh, and then they would start talking in Japanese mm -hmm. and then the person would respond in Japanese. And then after like five seconds, they would start talking in English. Um, so they performed the service, but also they were really interesting to talk to beforehand and afterwards because they would provide all this, you know, explanation about here's why this happened. Here's why this person said that here's a cultural norm that you didn't know that you were kind of stepping on. Um, oh, wow. You know, all the stuff would kind of happen. Um, and I remember we we did one interview in uh, in Tokyo where this one particular interpreter was would do a little bit of acting, like they would change the pitch of their voice, um, um, and 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 not to imitate, but to sort of, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. You kind of you exaggerate for clarity, and it's not mocking, but they would. Mm -hmm. I think you know one person that that she would interpret had a higher pitch. Um, and then, uh, and so they were almost like, yeah, like voiceover work, right? You're, you're exaggerating to have something be clearer. So all of that was really, really kind of, um, just astounding. And I really liked these people and liked being in the field with them. And, uh, but th there was this moment where, um, um, uh, and I hadn't, like, I hadn't traveled the world too much at that point. Um, and so here I am sitting in somebody's home in Japan, in Tokyo, um, you know, where the story kind of was, you know, they don't, Japanese don't socialize in homes as much in Tokyo, a place like Tokyo. Mm. Uh, so people don't go into homes, you know, foreigners don't get invited. There's places that foreigners just aren't welcome. Um, and so, you know, to be in someone's home um, and doing what I do, asking questions and trying to understand, you know, a set of behaviors and, and, and motivations, um, and I'm basically like when interpretation, simultaneous interpretation works when your brain can get around what's going on because it's all kinds of messed up, right? There's two people talking at once um, and even figuring out like eye contact is very strange. Like just imagine you're mm -hmm. looking at someone and they don't speak the same language, but next to you, like, you know, 45 degree head turn or whatever is somebody else. So when you start talking uh, or when, when the, when the person speaks to you in Japanese, this person sitting next to you starts speaking English, like, where do you look? So <laughs> do you look at the person that's, that's providing the interpretation? Cause that's kind of rude. On the other hand, your brain so badly wants to do that. Um, and I reached this kind of like, I don't know, like micro flow state where, um, I found myself looking at the person speaking Japanese and nodding along, <laughs> right? Partly just, I mean, that's a, that's a gesture of connection. I'm glad that you're laughing now. If it, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it makes no sense, except it was really, it was just wild. Um, and I felt like, 
yeah, I'm interviewing this person. We have this facilitated connection where, and because we don't understand each other, we're both leaning in. We're both trying really hard to connect Mm -hmm. across culture, across language, um, uh, you know, around all the stuff we were talking about. Um, And there was just this moment of like, yeah, you know, free falling or like in flow state where like, I was nodding because as far as at some sort of like level in my, you know, in my nerve endings, like I could understand them, even though it was going to be 11 seconds. So I kind of heard their words. Right. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's all kind of messed up and it doesn't, it's not how we sort of normally communicate, let alone how we normally do an interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was just so liberating and like energizing that like, wow, you put the right kind of people together and you can have this, like universal translator kind of science fiction kind of experience. It's, it's, it's through a human that's kind of enabling this to happen. Uh, but here I am through my profession and this thing that we're set up, like I'm in someone's home asking them about certain aspects of like mobile phone culture in Japan, like, and we're speaking our own languages. And it's just that moment of like, how cool is this? This is like right. really, really, really cool. Um, and of course, getting to go to Japan and do all that stuff for the first time was amazing uh, just, you know, as a traveler. But, you know, that those interviews and just, you know, as I'm talking, I can they were obviously quite a while ago, but I can picture those people in those spaces and what they said and even how I kind of felt sitting in those rooms. And and this the same, you know, uh, obviously French culture and American culture are similar Western cultures, but still being able to talk to people in, you know, fluent level French, not my high school abandoned French, but to like really, really do it (laughs) was just similarly like, yeah, like there's, there's, if you haven't done that before, there's just nothing like it. I mean, I'm trying to describe it, but it's a visceral thing. And, you know, if people who have done it, get it. And if you haven't, like, I hope you get to work with an interpreter someday. It's just really, really interesting. That does sound phenomenal (laughs) and interesting and it, it puts such a different take on conducting interviews, which we're about to get into in a moment as we sort of dive into the book. It's, I think when a lot of UXers hear, when they think research, they're thinking too generically. I think a lot of the people I've seen and, and talked to, when I hear people saying, I want to get into research, there are a lot of people I have encountered that don't really know what they're saying. I respect their, the curiosity, I respect the desire, but I also note, do you really know what you're, what you're, what you're about to get into here? And, and, and I've talked to people that said, I didn't know what I was getting into. It's sort of funny. And then now we, we laugh about it because we think about the perceptions that, that folks had. And now the reality is there. And then hearing those, those conversations three, four, five years after somebody has been in the game, it's, it's just wonderful stuff. And, and I hope people can, even in hearing this, can can respect that and understand it. And all you early researchers out there, it's really in your best interest to try to get as much of an understanding of where you're about to travel to. Because too narrow of a perspective, for some people, I have found that to be unnerving, unsettling, and and discouraging. It's I'm people who listen to my podcast, you know I'm about understanding the road you're about to travel. So the more you know about the road, even if you come across a pothole, so to speak, I use a lot of metaphors, Steve. So, well, no, no, fine with the metaphors, the potholes, the 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 road out signs, all these different things. It's better to know 
that you're going to experience it because now you're in a better position to manage it. If you if you get blindsided, you're not going to have a strategy. And and so I'm, I'm all about, hey, understand what's up ahead. You want to understand the breadth of what's going on and what you can expect with UX research. And again, we're about to get into some of that uh, because of uh, Steve's books. And I want to sort of dive in right here. I have a couple of specific questions about the book, but I thought it'd be great to sort of, before I even get to those, just start off and how about introducing folks to the book, your mindset behind the book, and let's let's just pitch the book <laughs> right here. All right. So the <laughs> book, which has just been out a month or two, I guess, is depending on, well, I don't even know. Let's just say a month or two, um, is a second edition of interviewing mm-hmm. users. And I like to think of it uh, as the 10th anniversary edition I mean, it is, it is 10 years since the book first came out. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I think for me personally and professionally, like it was a really, it's been pretty amazing to have written this book, uh, 2013 first edition. I think I had, uh, been teaching research, even going back to this agency, we used to go to the Stanford D school and like Ah. put together a lecture and like, uh, one of our colleagues taught there and he invited us to to put together some stuff about just asking questions. And over time, you know, you have accumulated like a body of material from articles and workshops and teaching. And I had people, um, you know, I, I started doing training in corporations because somebody asked me, could you come in? I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, I can do that. Uh, oh, would you come to this conference? And so I started getting invitations. Um, and so you, like we said up the front, you know, you practice, you make mistakes, um, the material gets better and better and better. Um, so in the early 2010s is when I started talking about doing this as a book, um, I had a lot of material. Uh, putting that into a book is obviously like a lot of work and uh, yeah. figuring out how to do that uh, and so on. But um, it was a... Uh, you know, we, we sort of talked about expertise kind of incrementally. Um, but I think, you know, it, it had long been a goal of mine to, to write a book professionally. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a non, be a, a fiction author, but you know, I ended up in a, in an actual more practical path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so to write, even to write any book was, I think it's a huge sort of personal achievement. Um, but it changed my, professional trajectory. Like it, it opened up opportunities. People um, invited me to do things because even though they knew me from, let's just say speaking, or I had a column in interactions magazine before that, it's not like I was unknown. I was well known for this topic, but the book I think legitimized me in in a way that I didn't know that Mm. I was missing out on. Wow. Um, And uh, I don't know. I think the book is the, the first edition is good. Like it, it explains a lot about how to do research and uh, articulates in a way that that hadn't been done before. There was a gap in the market mm-hmm. in 2013. So we have a lot more books now about research, but we didn't then. And so I think I was, you know, it's like chance favors the prepared mind. Like I'm not trying to diminish the quality of the book or the accomplishment of it, but, you know, when there's a gap, it also really, really helps. And so- yeah. The book has been around for 10 years and, um, you know, I thought about what do I want to do to mark the 10th anniversary again, because for me personally, it, it's been meaningful. I've connected with a lot of people about it and people, um, 
tell me nice things. They still do. Oh, this book was helpful to me or formative to me, or I've given it to people. And like, it's really great. Like there's nothing like having someone tell you that something that you did, you know, impacted them. Right. Right. I start to feel a little bit like, um, Oh, my mom likes your band, you know, like that sense of, of, of the material is aging. I'm aging. It's an artifact from a previous time. And I thought, okay, 10 years is, a, is, is worth kind of marking. And, um, and so anyway, the, the opportunity to do a second edition and update it kind of was, was available. And, um, you know, I, I had sort of dismissed that idea because I thought, well, this the book is evergreen. The advice is there. People are people asking questions is asking questions. Um, but, you know, some, so the idea went, I went back and forth on it. And somehow one day I just kind of tipped over to like, yeah, if I were to do this. And so I did that little uh, sort of forcing question, like without thinking too hard, this is almost like an improv activity, right? Like don't go and plot this out. Just like list the things that, that I would want to talk about. I'd want to write about. And I came up with, I don't know, six or eight kind of major things or felt major at the time without any effort and thought, oh, okay, I do have more to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of led to a much more like deliberate effort to, you know, revisit the book. What are new topics? What are updated examples from mistakes that I've made? What are different uh, voices I want to bring in? How does this, how does this flow? How do I explain this better? What, what else do we have to talk about to kind of you know, create a path towards what a second edition is going to be that um, and I think has all the evergreen stuff from 10 years ago. I think that stuff is better because I've rewritten it or updated it, mm-hmm. um, but also represents the field as it is now, which is, as I think, you know, theme for our whole conversation, like it's just, it doesn't look the way that it did in the past. So yep. yeah, second edition, uh, 10th anniversary edition. That's fantastic. And and I'm going to call out two of the things that I think stood out to me the most. Things that, and I, I, I'm calling out two things in the book that, that I'd like to hear you talk about. And they're reflective on, I mean, I'm, I was a former UX research manager. I've mentored people all over the world. And there's two critical things, sort of piggybacking on what I said a few moments ago, too, that people have this perception of what it takes to do research or what research is that, no, we want to tweak that. I, 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 want, it, I want you to be successful, uh, but if you if we don't tweak this, your success is going to be. <laughs> I, I don't want to see, I, I can picture you in that mode, and I don't want to see you there. I, and I, I, I just care too much. So, And I put myself out there, okay, folks, let's do this. Let's have a tweak session. And so at any rate, chapter two, there's a portion in chapter two I'm going to call out. And a portion in chapter six. And so in chapter two, and that chapter for the listeners is about research logistics. As soon as I see the title of that, I immediately start to geek out from a UX perspective because people just don't even think about logistics associated with conducting research. And in that topic, Steve talks about finding participants, things like finding participants, scheduling, managing incentives, creating the guide. And and there's a segment here where he says, and I'll quote, and then I'll hand over the mic to you again. Steve says, it takes a lot of preparation, perhaps a surprising amount, to set up successful field research. 
I don't recommend leaping into the field work without setting yourself up to be successful. That is just, it's, it seems obvious to some, but a lot of people don't understand that. And, and people feel that doing research is going to happen by osmosis. Achieving success is going to happen by osmosis. It's just going to be, I don't have to put any effort into it. It's just going to fall into my lap. Not the case at all. And so I want you to uh, take some time here to just talk about the logistical mindset, which yeah. I like to think of sometimes as a strategic mindset or part of it, of the strategic mindset of achieving success in research that it's going to take some work. Research has to be designed. It has to be managed. You can't just pop into a room. I literally saw somebody once ask people, we talk about those LinkedIn posts, which one do you like, A or B? I actually saw somebody do that one day at work. And they only asked one question and thought they were done. And they were huffing and puffing, acting like they were exhausted after asking people. I'm like, nothing was done. <laughs> this is not going to help us. But I'll hand it over from there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. There was a there was a semi-viral post from about how to go into a bar and show people stuff. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of a, I think it was meant to be helpful, but it was kind of a, a little bit of a smart ass post. I remember because they, you know, give people beer and like ask them a question. And I don't know, it seems like, you know, if, if, if you are, if one is trying to, uh, you know, help somebody else learn a skill, uh, or, you know, or utilize a process or a practice, it seems, I guess everything is on a continuum, but you can see one end of the continuum says, this is really hard. And the other end of the continuum says, this is really easy. Um, and I mean, hopefully I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I'm trying to say like, this is hard, but here's how to get there. Yes. Um, and I feel, you know, I guess if that's my story, I feel pretty critical of people that are like, oh, anyone can do this. This is easy. <laughs> um, you know, and there are books and posts like this that kind of say that, um, and I think there's something to be said for low, lowering barriers, reducing intimidation, kind of giving people some some power and some confidence, um, you know. And so we got to ask ourselves, like, is that person, uh, you know, all exhausted from talking to one person in the office? Is it better that they did that than, than they just sat in their in their cube and kind of thought how smart they were? Is the <laughs> team going into the bar or the one person going? Is that better or not? Than, than not doing that. Mm. Um, and I think argument for better is like any effort you make to get out of your own head um, is, it can be well-intentioned, um, you know, and like the the evil part of me hopes that, that people try and fail. If you go to a bar and think if you just ask somebody one question in a bar about something that's on your laptop, and you fail somehow in that, and you at least learn that you failed, you mm -hmm. know, now I feel like now I'm going to hand you my book and say like, okay, you know, here's how to kind of get there. Um, and so maybe people need to sort of try these things where someone says like, oh yeah, it's, it's super easy. Just, just to ask this one question. Um, <laughs> that's not how I would go about it. I would like to say like, this is hard for the following reasons. And like, here's the way to get there. But, you know, people learn, we talked about like, Cocky arrogance. We talk about my cocky arrogance, and but I think that's just a it's it's part of uh, what we all go through to like learn stuff or not learn stuff, and yep. um, I think that applies to research. So it's the logistics for sure, 
but you know, everything in this is like, if you follow a lot of the, the, the reason why there's a book is because if you follow your instincts without having gone through this before, you're going to steer yourself in the wrong direction. You're not going to get useful information. You're going to think that you have useful information and that's even worse, right? I think yep. something that yep. you are questioning is tentative is one thing. Something that you're absolutely sure is like it and is not, and you don't know is like really sort of risky for your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the logistics uh, it's, I like that you, you talk about that, that stuff excites you. I think for there's other people that they don't want to do that. Like I just, I just want to ask somebody, let me go, let me get in the bar, let me go down the hallway. Um, and so to kind of say, like, you know, s- slow your roll, like we have to be intentional. Right. And, and and that's what a lot of logistics are, is like being intentional, right? Yeah. Like, yep. who do we want to talk to? Who is going to give us the information? Assuming we know why we're doing this, what we need, what we're going to act on in our organization, uh, what that really looks like among the different people who think this research needs to be done which is a lot. That's a lot to, to, to align, to, to uncover and to align on, um, to figure out, okay, well, who are we going to talk to? Um, often that is, well, let's talk to Brian. Like we always talk to Brian. We have a call with him coming up next week. Brian's like, you know, he gave us some feedback. You know, there's, the, there's often the default as opposed to the intentional. Mm-hmm. Who should we talk to? Who's going to give us the information that we need uh, what are their characteristics? What are their qualities? Um, you know, what use, what model of usage do they have such that they are qualified to speak about the question that we have? So we have to know our question in order to understand, right? I mean, a question, kind of big picture question, know our objective mm-hmm. to know who the who should be. Um, so that's, that's not walking into a bar, even if it's a bar of, I don't know, Miller light drinkers and your Miller light trying to do some research. Like it, you know, the bar is probably not where people are that are, that have your context that you need them to have in order yes. to get that information. Context. Yes. Yes. So, so the, the context and the intention, I think kind of need to be there. Um, and this is before we get to like, what are we going to ask them? Mm-hmm. Um, because, hey, here's this thing. Tell me what you think about it. It's like, that's not the greatest way to get something in depth, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, right. So to know how to ask that question. Uh, and here's just an obvious one I think that a lot of people miss, uh, you know, that I think is a, is a, is a, a tactical opportunity. If you, if you want to get feedback from people, you're going to go into a bar and show them something um, or show something in any, in any situation I think a lot of people default to taking their process artifacts as opposed to creating a thing specifically to show. Mm-hmm. So something that looks like it was mocked up in, I don't know, whatever mock-up tool people are using that uses your design guidelines that looks fully realistic. Maybe that's the wrong thing to show because it looks ready to ship. Um, mm. Right. And, and, you know, when we used, we used to do paper prototyping, maybe more, um, and I remember seeing posts that are like, why would you bother with paper prototyping? It's just as easy to mock it up in a highly realistic, you know, design tool. Um, and that is an ignorant claim because that doesn't understand <laughs> what the purpose of a paper prototype is. It's to invite people just like cartoons. You watch cartoons, they cartoons can do anything, 
right? They're not tied to reality. Mm-hmm. Paper prototypes are not finished artifacts, so they could be anything. You want to invite people to critique things and not critique the kerning or the shading or the the left justification or the right icons, but the concept, then you need to present them with the right thing to give the right level of feedback on. So paper prototypes yes. afford a certain kind of context for that conversation. Um, so, you know, there's just, these are choices all the way up and down to make about, you know, what are we trying to learn? Who are we going to learn from? What are we going to do with them? This is all planning. And so if you're really eager to like, just go show to somebody and, you know, someone like me says like, oh, there's a lot of intention that's kind of needed here. Um, you know, I think the, the corollary to that is like, or the counter to that is like, it depends, right? Everything depends. <laughs> right. Um, and there are plenty of questions for which showing it to a couple of people to get some feedback is sufficient, but not always. And I think it takes some experience to understand the difference between those. Um, and to not, so I don't want to be, I don't want research to be seen as like, don't approach them because they're going to say everything takes, you know, 10 weeks and this much money. Like not everything does, right? I think we want to provide the most efficient way to get there. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm just on a, I'm on a soapbox here. So I'm going <laughs> to step off of it for a moment no. and then I'm going to get back on it. Uh, when you ask me about it. <laughs> soapboxes are always permitted. We love soapboxes over here on, on the world of UX. But it, this may help because my second question from chapter six actually builds on the one from chapter two. And in chapter nice. six, and the topic of chapter six, the title is The Intricacies of Asking Questions. And I love this because this is probably, when I'm teaching people about research, it's one of the, outside of the classroom, when I'm talking to people about research, this is the topic for me that comes up the most this, this one particular thing that you mentioned, and I'm going to read another excerpt from the book. And there's a heading here. There's power in your silence. Oh, my God. How many times have I talked to people about this? Steve says, after you ask a question, be silent. This is tricky because you are speaking with someone you've never spoken to before. You're learning about their conversational rhythm how receptive they are to your questions, and what cues they give when thinking about an answer. These tiny moments, from part of a second to several seconds, are nerve-wracking, end quote. And, and, and I love that because it's one of the things that I see and people will ask a question. And it's funny watching, or it's funny after, it's not funny in the moment, although I do laugh in the moment too. I'm always looking for something to laugh, laugh at. The uh, where people to watch people grind their teeth when the participant is silent, to watch people him and haw, and and the participants want to help, and uh, or I'm sorry, the participant, the 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 researcher wants to help the participant, and and things get out of hand. Sometimes I have seen people jump practically across the table to try to guide somebody because they just couldn't stand the silence. But the, the, the title says it, the, the subheading there or the heading in the, in the chapter, there's power in your silence. And so I'll hand it over to you to elaborate on this topic. Yeah. And I think you described some of the, the phenomenon, uh, pretty well. Um, and there was a moment in, in, the, in this conversation, I think you, you because we're on video, even though we're recording audio, we are in video and we're we're looking at each other and nodding and doing all the 
as best we can over, you know, video kind of, kind of feedback. Um, but there's a point at which you said, oh, I see the gears in your head are turning, Steve, and I'm going to like <laughs> turn it, turn it over to you. Um, right. And I think, you know, as a trained interviewer, as an experienced podcast, I was like, you learn what that is. Um, and there's, there's been moments where I've asking a question and I'll just stop. I don't need to finish my question. The person is ready to talk. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, I'm going to ask a follow-up question. I'm going to ask a dozens of follow-up questions. So yes. if the thing that they want to say is not exactly what I want to ask them about, then I'm better. It's better for the whole dynamic to have them go. And then me follow on and follow on and follow on. As opposed to like, no, 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 wait, let me make sure you understand exactly what my question is. So the information that you give me perfectly conforms to the parameters <laughs> which I am articulating. Like that's not how research works. It's this it's this sloppy interface between people that kind of goes back and forth. Uh, and so you have to understand your role is to kind of draw that out of them. Um, and so the, right, that hem and haw thing or even trying to help, help them, as you say, um, I think is really important because the, if you if you can't allow for that silence, the 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 anti pattern or the the bad behavior that comes out is asking these run on questions, mm-hmm. uh, and the run on questions are, are deadly. And in those run on questions, people start suggesting, you know, so you're going to ask a, what could be an open open ended question, um, like um, what kind of microphone do you have, uh, you know, for your video calls. But the run-on question is, what kind of microphone do you have? Is that a USB mic, or is that a, if I, you know, is that a, a Shure microphone, or is that a, you know, an Audio Techniques, or is that part of your headset? Like you start suggesting possible answers. Mm, yep. Yep. Um, and and the motivation <laughs> for doing that, you know, I think there's a lot of you have to, to pay attention to yourself. It feels like you can kid yourself that you're being helpful when you do that. Mm-hmm. I'm being helpful. I'm just showing them what examples are. Um, uh, but in fact, it's because you are, and I shouldn't say you, I should say we, this is, uh, I'm in this yep. all the time. Yep. It's uncomfortable to stop and just say, what kind of microphone is that? For all the reasons in that quote that you described, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose face. I'm going to be seen as an idiot. Uh, that person's not tracking with me. My boss is going to watch this video. There's all this risk in that moment, it's kind of like a little, Mm. it's a little abyss that you're kind of leaping into. Uh, But if you start suggesting things, it, it messes up the power dynamic. Um, It it says that for one thing, the participant has to, is required to listen to the, to the interviewer going on and on and on. Um, uh, Right. And, and it also starts to say over time, that their answers should be, it's multiple choice question. So you participants should be giving answers within the format that I have outlined. So you might think that's ridiculous, Steve and Darren. Uh, if it's none of those mics, the person's just going to say, um, no, this is just an old karaoke mic that I brought up from the basement. <laughs> They're going to give you an answer that's outside that list. Mm-hmm. And the first time they will, and maybe the second time they will, but eventually you are training them as to how to do a good job, which they want to do. Yep. They want to do a good job for you. And so they're not being squelched from sharing their truth about microphones. 
they're just trying to get through this interview and do a good job. So the more you teach them indirectly what a good job looks like, in other words, one of the following, um, then the more you risk, you know, not hearing from them and not, not kind of getting stuff. And, uh, you know, you don't, we don't realize the power we have over people, despite being kind and self-deprecating and telling them at the beginning, I just want to hear from you. Just tell me your truth. And, you know, there's no wrong answers. You can do all that. It doesn't matter. Once you start training them what good looks like, then that's what you're going to get. So I think it's, mm. it's hard and it's it's hard because we're sort of not for all for the quote you read kind of explains why it's hard and we trick ourselves that we're helping so that makes it harder uh but the 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 risk in this i think is significant uh because it accrues to changing the dynamic in the interview and changing what it is you're going to hear yes yes absolutely and and even before we we're, we're going to start heading into our our wrap up here momentarily, but I'm just reminded again, after hearing you elaborate on these things, just reminding people, if you want to get into UX research, by all means, uh, we want to encourage you. Uh, people will accuse folks who've been around of being gatekeepers. And ironically, they never provide you with examples where somebody did it. Nobody's blocking anybody's entry. We are trying to show you how to proceed so you can be successful, not, not, not to block you. And and, and I said that to say this, doing UX research is more than a notion. Doing UX work, period, is more than a notion. And we want to make sure that people are aware of some of the nuances, some of the challenges, so that you can excel. Go out. You can be as good as you want to be with regard to this discipline. So when you get these these nuggets, uh, grab a hold to them and never let them go. And, and, and you're going to start somewhere when you learn something and just keep building on that and getting better and better and better. But the, these things are so critical. I, I cannot tell you how many people I've seen. They just simply couldn't be silent during, during the interview process. And now the concept of, and this is drilled in me and my PhD work that research is about trustworthy, obtaining trustworthy, reliable and actionable data. A little, little bit of UX, the actionable came from my UX work. But once you start to train people to do something or you start to impact people, because some people will start to tell you if you make a wrong move, some participants will tell you what they think you want to hear as opposed to what they'd really need to say or want to say. You you don't get the genuine version of them if we don't if we don't conduct the interview and conduct the research that face to face type of engaging a face to face methodology, I should say. Uh, it, it now your data is now skewed. And and if you do that, you have some qualitative research and you talk to eight people and you have chimed in way too much on all eight. That data is not going to be it. it you, your data integrity is gone now. So it is our job to protect the integrity of data. You won't hear people say that when it comes to UX research. But, yeah, that's one of the things we have to do when you say you want to be a researcher. Are you ready to protect the integrity of the data? Are you ready to protect the the or pro, to engage ethically with the participant? There's so much that can be said about this topic, and it's way more than with some people. I'm just going to conduct a survey. Ooh, I did research. No, no, there's a bit more. <laughs> there's a bit more going on than that. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna go into our 
our our concluding segment. And I have one, the final question, which I ask everybody, uh, and this is your general go wherever you want to go with this one. Soapbox is good. Uh, it, it's all on you uh, here. What are your parting words? Very generic. What are your parting words for the listeners today? Uh, make mistakes and learn from them. Uh, and I say that like just everything that we're talking about, right? You, you, How many people have you seen that can't keep quiet? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I teach people, I, you know, I do these workshops um, and it's, you know, teach the theory or teach, describe the best practices, then let people go and try it. Yep. Um, and I remember sort of early in my career as running workshops, people would come back and tell me that like they didn't or couldn't do the thing that I told them. And I felt like, well, I failed as an instructor and that person failed, like they're not a good student. And, and what I realized sort of over time was that what the outcome of these, like, it's fine to like read this book. I mean, please read this book uh, to go to one of my workshops to like, you know, have me train your team. Um, when people try to apply it, especially in a safe workshop environment, mm-hmm. they try to apply it and they mess it up or they see that it's hard and they see that in themselves. Like if they, then that's it. Like that's the best possible outcome. Like it's cause you know, you like, I can, I can tell you something, but you have to learn it yourself. I think that's like, Mm -hmm. that's been threaded through a lot of what we're talking about. You talk about expertise from people that are older than you or more experienced than you, or that can bring something different to you. Um, You still often have to make those mistakes yourself. Uh, So when, you know, when you see someone that can't, keep quiet and, you know, and asking questions and you give them that guidance and they try it again and they say, wow, I couldn't keep quiet in that interview. Like they're in the best possible position to make that improvement because we, we're <laughs> yes. not in the business of like controlling somebody else. So, yes. you know, it goes all the way back to that early workshop when that person highlighted why something was hard for them or why it went against their instinct. Like it made my teaching better because there's a lot of things that I say, okay, this seems really dumb, but I'm going to explain it and it's going to be really hard and here's why it's hard. So now I can set people up, but they still have to make that mistake. They still have to encounter their own um, challenges and limitations. And and because we're doing unlearning, right? Here's how we Mm -hmm. converse. Here's how we try to make connections with people. And we have to do a lot of things differently in research. So of course you're going to go up against your ingrained behaviors, until yep. you start to understand how these are different. And so using these these nuggets to sort of help you see the gap between what you assume and what you should do and experiencing that yourself. You know, if you experience that yourself, then you get it. And then then you're better. Then you've, you're, you're improving and developing. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of making mistakes. Um, obviously, there's safer context for making mistakes. Um, you know, <laughs> right experiment, practice, sandbox, you know, um, uh, so that when the stakes are higher, um, you're in a situation to, to be successful. But a lot of the stuff we're talking about is all stuff that can be practiced, like, you know, prototyped, tried out, done outside of, you know, a high consequences situation. So, um, yeah. That's fantastic. Make mistakes, learn from those mistakes. Yes. And, and hearing you say that, I also want to remind people, 
if you're afraid of making mistakes, make that a goal to overcome the fear of making mistakes. <laughs> There's a lot of maturity and a lot of development on the other side of that mountain of fear, that, that, that metaphorical mountain of fear. If we, once we get over that, I remember when you learned to ride a bike and when you finally got overcame the fear of falling, it wasn't too much longer after that, that you were able to ride the bicycle. It, it's the same. That metaphor lends itself to a lot of different things. And the same thing happens in UX. We all started somewhere. Steve's started somewhere. I started somewhere. Everybody that you admire started somewhere. And, and so no matter where you are, whether you're a, a new, brand new practitioner in UX, you're a one year, three year, five year, 10 years, everybody has been somewhere and you're going somewhere. And, and there's going to have to be some breaking outside of those comfort zones. And we have to embrace it, face it head on and go run directly at it is what I found the best thing to do. What are you not confident in? What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? Identify it and run straight toward it. <laughs> and you'll find that uh, without that fear, you'll find that success is achieved a lot faster. So that said, we are done. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, we want to thank Steve Portugal again, our guest for coming on and, and and talking about the subjects of UX research to help talk about the second edition of the of the book and sharing some some insights with our listeners today. There was one thing, one reminder that I set for myself is that there is a promotional code for people listening to the podcast if they want to buy the book. So I'll turn it back over to Steve That's to talk about that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you buy this from Rosenfeld Media, which is the better place to buy it, support small businesses and support authors from mm -hmm. uh, buy from the publisher. Uh, so they have generously provided us, you, everyone, with the code uh, "World of UX" one word, um, and that uh, will give you twenty percent off this book. Fantastic, fantastic! So everybody. We're also going to put this in the metadata, the description for the episode there. So if you forgot or you, you're you in a position, you're not in a position to go back and listen to this part again, it's going to be in the description. So we're going to make sure this gets out there everywhere, across social media, everywhere, um, just to make it easier for people to get the book. And there's nothing like a good UX library. Nothing like it. <laughs> so always want to encourage people. That's why I recommend books all the time. So uh that is it, though, for today. Again, thank you, Steve, for taking the time out of your schedule to join us and speak to the world of UX audience and to the world of UX community at large. We're, we're very grateful, uh, very thankful, very appreciative for you taking that time today. But it is time to sign off, folks. So until next time, this is the host of the world of UX, Darren Hood, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.